0: Welcome to You Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. John Dean from Sheffield Hallam University in the UK about Doing Reflexivity, an Introduction, which is published by Policy Press. Welcome to You Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to John Dean from Sheffield Hallam University in the UK about his new book, Doing Reflexivity, an Introduction, which is published by Policy Press. So welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Dave.
0: Normally, I'd kind of start off by um, saying to my guests, you know, can you tell me a bit about your academic background, the sort of thinking that's gone into the book? But the book is very much about your academic background and kind of placing you um, front and centre as a researcher. So, um, you know, maybe we we might start by kind of saying, like, where did this book come from within the story of John Dean's academic uh, career?
1: story of John Dean's academic career makes it sound very highfalutin and it must sound really arrogant for my first academic publication to have myself front and centre but it is sort of a necessity of reflexivity in certain ways when you're doing it within methods. So I did a PhD about youth volunteering which was a field that I'd worked in and I ended up Researching, collecting qualitative data through interviews in places where I'd lived in the West Midlands and in the southeast of England. And issues of class and identity became very important within that PhD, and it came clear that a huge part of the methodological approach of the dissertation had to be around issues of what impact I as a researcher with knowledges of the two areas that I was researching in and of the field I was researching came to play on the data. And so it ended up that reflexivity and this issue of of where we stand in relation to data became just something I was very interested in and something that I wanted to read more about. Going on to teaching it found that actually there weren't great materials uh, to guide students and early career researchers as to how to manage reflexivity in the field and that subjectivity that arises from nearness or farness from research data, so I decided to write the book around that.
0: What is this term then reflexivity what what are we actually talking about here what what does this What does this mean
1: Well, frankly, I think reflexivity is. Maybe the most overused word in the social sciences, it has come to mean a multitude of things to a multitude of people. You've got Giddens talking about reflexive modernity and the fact that we all have to construct our biographies. Uh, more than we did in the past when meta-narratives exist to a larger extent. You've got people like Margaret Archer writing about reflexivity in terms of the internal conversations that take place within people as they manage and guide their behavior. But within this book, I'm talking about reflexivity in terms of its Methodological importance. So, we're talking about issues of subjectivity and objectivity and positionality and bias. So, to what extent are you an insider in the field in which you're researching, or are you an outsider? And how do those two things come to bear on the uh, research that you do? To what extent are you more powerful than the people you're speaking to, or less powerful? And how does that come to impact? your subjective awareness of feeling and emotion around certain topics and how should those be managed and written up. So it's all about how do you as a researcher impact on the data that you are collecting and how best can we account for that in trying to be as scientific and neutral as possible.
0: One of the things that the book has got um, quite sort of... um explicitly and quite early on is a particular kind of theoretical uh, attachment to the work of Pierre Bourdieu. And as you mentioned, you know, there are lots of different uh, versions or iterations of, of reflexivity uh, across different uh, thinkers and different um, social scientists. So why is, why was Bourdieu kind of um, important um, to your understanding of reflexivity? Um, what, why, why him? So
1: Bourdieu, I think everybody has a theorist, don't they? And for me, it was Bourdieu and his work on habitus and capital that came to uh, help me theorise class in the work I was doing on volunteering, homelessness and various other issues within the charity sector. And reading more and more about Bourdieu, and I didn't have a background in sociology when I was doing my PhD. I Studied politics and American history. So I'd never heard of these big names of Bourdieu and Foucault, and I was rather overawed by all of it. In fact, I hadn't heard of them, and it was my supervisor suggesting that I go and read them. And reading Bourdieu is famously quite difficult. He's more read around than read, I suppose. But one of the things that started to strike me was that Bourdieu had struggled with this problem of reflexivity. Um, and how uh, bias and the personality of the researcher can come to play on the research in the same sort of ways than I did. And actually, the second half of his career, if you were the last 15 years of his career, were very much focused both on collecting data and extending his theoretical frameworks, but also focusing on his version of reflexivity.
0: One of the things you... I guess, kind of bring up in terms of Budger's version of reflexivity is his kind of like uh, his practice, I, I guess we might call it. Um, and, you know, you, you you point towards this idea of um, a sketch for, for self-analysis, one of the things, you know, um Bodhi had done around um, things like um, the invitation to reflexive sociology um, and a broader kind of like, um, I guess, sort of, theory uh, of intellectual practice um, and I was quite struck by that term you know the kind of sketch for self-analysis not just the, um, the book um, that, that you referenced but the idea that we might do this ourselves as, as social scientists and I wonder what would be that kind of process you know how, how might we do this uh, sketch for self-analysis.
1: So while it takes him probably 30 years to make this very explicit Bourdieu was written through his theory and his research projects. So, he studied the Algerian War in which he was a soldier. He studied social and practices, family practices of rural France where he grew up and was socialized. He studied the French elite um, which he became a member of, the French university system, the media in which he became to play a large part. So, he was always researching things that he knew or that he was interested in. And I think we all do that to a certain extent. We can't pretend that we end up researching things that we have absolutely no interest in, although or, or we would prefer never to do that, I suppose. If you are a contract researcher, you may end up in that world. And towards the end of his life, Bourdieu uh, did a series of lectures at the Collège de France um, in which he, he sort of tried to, to unpick his own sociology. And one of those was called A Sketch for Self Analysis, which was published in English in 2007. And it's a really odd book because it starts with this phrase, this is not an autobiography. And he was very wary of coming across as a narcissist and someone who was obsessed with himself and his work could be dismissed as, oh, well, this is only the opinion of so-and-so. This isn't a proper scientific study. And in sketch for self analysis, in the first half, what he tries to do is sketch his intellectual positioning, goes through all the famous names of, of French social science and philosophy and says how he relates to all of them and how they have guided his practice in various ways. And that's interesting enough. For those people who are interested in maybe intellectual history. But in the second half, he really digs down into his formative experiences. He talks about going to boarding school and not fitting in on the rugby field. And therefore, I always think of that. Is is it any surprise that someone like Bourdieu, who'd had those experiences of not fitting in, of speaking with quite a rural, working class, south-west France accent, not fitting in at the Collège de France and these amazing schools that he went to, that he would come up with theories like hysteresis, the fish-out-of-water syndrome, when your uh, habitus – your, your uh, class habitus, for instance, doesn't fit into the field in which you find yourself situated. So sketch for a self-analysis is sort of trying to go through those formative experiences and see how that has created your own positioning and then looking at that in hindsight and saying, well, that is maybe is that is why I've come up with that theory or that's why I've interpreted that situation in that way. In... Um, distinction, his really famous uh, study of class and taste within uh, French society. There's the famous uh, equation he uses, um, which is habitus times capital plus field equals practice. And it's, well, it's not easy, obviously, to use a Equation to sort of understand social life because there's so much other stuff going on, and you can never say that mathematically it works. If you break that down, that is quite simplified as who we are combined with what we've got, the skills we have, our capitals, plus where we are, the field that we are at any one position, sort of gives us a guiding principle to equal what we do, the practice that we'll have in any situation. And so I tried to take that equation. And apply it to both Bourdieu's life as a researcher, but also use that as a way of anybody can use that to look at their own life as a researcher. So if you think about your personal biography and your your position, combined with the research skills that you have and the research resources that you have, plus the site of where you're doing the research, may give you some guide as to your research practice.
0: This is one of the ways that the book kind of points towards um, practice and, I guess, kind of, you know, practical guidance um, even as it's engaging theoretically and the second half of the book i found really interesting because of its uh, set of um, practical examples before we kind of move into them i guess there's um, one final set of theoretical considerations which is the broader setting for reflexivity and the fourth chapter in the book does this by thinking about um, the other elements uh, of reflexivity almost beyond Uh, Borgia or perhaps, you know, the kind of things Borgia maybe wasn't great on, standpoints, um, disciplines, particular spaces. So I wonder if you could talk me through a couple of those, particularly, say, standpoints and um, and disciplines. So
1: obviously it's within what we would call the feminist school of research that reflexivity has been prioritised perhaps more than any other Place And in the book, I talk extensively about Anne Oakley's work and Anne Oakley's work on interviewing women, particularly young women who were going through uh, pregnancy. And Oakley's work on interviewing women has talked about interviewing as a very non-hierarchical Experience when done properly, trying to think about who you are as a researcher, and trying to make the interviewee as at ease as possible someone who's giving their time to help you out. what I think is so useful from oakley 's work is that she breaks down how researchers are trying to be taught how to do things like qualitative interviewing in the 1970s. She goes through all these textbooks that is giving people advice on how to do methodology and it doesn't seem to understand that the research has any p- place to play at all. That you should just have an interview schedule, a list of questions and just go through them da 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 da. And she says it's a far more organic and humane experience than that. You can't prescribe interview practice. That's quite indefensible. You can't take advice from methods text because it's often contradictory. And actually, she says, the best data about people is collected when the interviewer is prepared to invest his or her own personal identity in the relationship. She gives the example of these young women were often quite scared about giving birth, and they asked her for advice as someone who'd, who'd had children. And she said in the methods textbooks, it said, you should never answer an interviewee's question. You should never sort of open yourself up in that way. Well, that's to us in 2017, absolutely ridiculous. Of course, we now know it's a two-way relationship and she was obviously wanting to make these young women feel more comfortable and so would be very honest about that experience. And so it was, it was the transformational impact of feminist researchers that helped us understand how qualitative data could uh, be collected in a much more generous and genuine way. But obviously that does create questions, therefore, of what impact did you as the researcher have. In regard to disciplines, Oakley said that sociology is sexist in 1974 and we know that through campaigns like why is my curriculum so white that we can also say that much of social science teaching at UK universities is quite racist as well or certainly doesn't speak to a large portion of student experiences. And thinking through the weaknesses and benefits of your discipline is, I think, really quite key to being properly reflexive. Reflexivity can be about the practical elements of research, it can be about the personal elements of the researcher, but also we have to ask disciplinary questions about what are the hegemonic ideas, theories and methods of your discipline and are these always the best things to be applying and using? It was that sort of questioning of um, this sort of structural element of disciplines that Bourdieu was very good at. And it's also questions that people like David Graeber have asked of anthropology more recently. I don't think we should spend our entire lives critiquing disciplines because what matters is the data, not that we spend our entire lives going, well, sociology is rubbish for this reason, this reason, and this reason. But I think it is important that everybody does have that structural overview of the disciplinary boundaries in which they're working.
0: One way of of kind of clarifying both um, standpoints of disciplines is with some practical examples. And um, the second half of the book has got lots and lots of these practical examples Um, And we can pick, you know, kind of several of them. I wonder if you could say how these um, different concerns over reflexivity play out with, say, local government, which is the case of Hannah Jones's work, or in elite boarding schools, which is Shamus Khan's um, example.
1: Yeah, so in the book, I have a chapter devoted to four studies in which I go through quite in-depth those studies and pick out all the elements in there where the researcher had an effect on the data or where they had to think about the effect they were having on their data and the different ways different researchers try and manage this position. So Hannah Jones in her award-winning book, Negotiating Cohesion, Inequality and Change, explores how local government community cohesion workers think about their work. Now, Jones had done this job herself. She'd worked in local government at a community level uh, in Hackney in East London, I believe. And so she was taking quite a lot of knowledge of government policies and the way local government is organized into these interviews. And so she always had to be, I think, quite wary about balancing bringing too much to the table. But what she was most interested in was how those community workers themselves thought that their backgrounds affected them. So on the first page, she's interviewing a a, a, a woman called Rachel who does this job do you think your background or identity affects how you think about cohesion god it must do it must do and so throughout she's asking these questions about how can policy which is meant to be neutral and blind get applied by supposedly objective uh, policymakers, when actually they all have experiences of cohesion, experiences of community relations that aren't always positive and the impact that that has on how policy gets um, applied at a local level. So she's interviewed some makers who makers or policy practitioners, as she calls them, who feel very uncomfortable about pushing community cohesion when they know that their area has changed due to levels of immigration and that they feel rather uncomfortable. It's the word that she uses throughout to tell that story and just being honest about how those things come up. In Seamus Khan's book, Privilege, which is of interest, my favorite academic book. Um, read it quite voraciously, quite uh, still, quite frequently. And I think being honest about which texts you like and which theorists you like is quite an important part of reflexivity because we should say that we're always going to draw on the things that we like more than things that we actually can't stand. So, St. Paul's school in New England costs around $50,000 a year to attend. And Seamus Khan, who's a lecturer at Columbia in New York, uh, attended as a boy. And he goes back as a teacher to teach for one year to try and understand how privilege is embodied among this uh, youth, this um, this set of New England hierarchy, the future leaders of America. And he pushes his personal experiences to the fore. The t- story is told that, so, well, back in my day, this was how things were, and now this is how things are. There's a certain um, importance that he pushes on push- pushing things. Because he's a teacher, he has a responsibility to try and educate the pupils. But as a researcher, he's also meant to do no harm and be ethical and stand back at all times. So I think he he has a tricky balance to push there. And he at some points as a teacher makes his pupils feel quite uncomfortable, whereas as a researcher we would probably be quite uh, wary of doing that. But one thing I think is missing from his book is that he doesn't really reflect on gaining access. He was an insider in that school. He had the ability to go and do that research as a former pupil and as someone who was now a professor at Columbia, exactly the sort of person that school would want teaching their future leaders of America. His ability to speak the language of St. Paul's is probably not quite reflected on as much as I would – expect within that sort of study so just that's very quickly two great books that have reflexivity and insider outsider questions at their core but in which the researchers tackled them in slightly different ways
0: and what about in your your own work you you give the example of the desert island discs project which sounded like a fascinating bit um of of both you know the kind of research project itself but also um the things that, that that brought up as you Have I guess, this kind of, you know, comparative group um, trying to do research on the same object.
1: Yes. So in that spirit of researching what you're interested in, uh, then finding a way to turn listening to Desert Island Discs into a research project probably is up there. So this has been published both within the book and as a recent uh, journal article in uh, qualitative research. And what this was was myself and five colleagues, uh, three from sociology and two from psychology, listening to the Desert Island Discs interviews of Ricky Gervais, Frank Skinner and Johnny Vegas, all three male, white, working class British comedians. And what we did was we listened to them separately, we analyzed them separately, bringing our own disciplinary, methodological and interests to those uh, interviews. And then came together as a group and shared how we'd looked at them. And what we we did this because we know that two researchers looking at the same data can draw different conclusions. But there is very, very, very little sociological evidence that we know that. It sounds obvious. And therefore, I think that's why researchers haven't studied it. So what we did was that we tried to show how that happens in practice, how six different researchers with the same data and the same instructions will go away and look at the same set of transcripts in exactly in totally different ways. So we would got people who brought a. Uh, ethnographic media studies approach to it, looking at um, sort of situating Desert Island Discs within this structural landscape of the British media, this sort of this is your life entry to the pantheon of British celebrity. My colleague Henry, who's a discursive psychologist, just unpicked the interviewer's first initial questions and introductions, sort of doing that detailed forensic Uh, um, language analysis. Uh, We've got people looking at religion, people who'd codify the entire data, people who just pick out individual stories that they liked. So just within that very small sample, we were trying to show that there are a multitude of different ways of approaching the same data. And then we asked ourselves the question, right, why why have we done this. And some people said, well, I wanted to test my theory and my method. Some people said I wanted to focus on age because I'm really interested in that. And my colleague, Steve, who's uh, who's approaching retirement, he was particularly interested in um, that side of it. And my colleague, Dermot, has done work on religion before. So he wanted to look at how these three men talked about religion and they all did to a certain extent. And so, you just start pulling out different strands of the same data. And this is, I think, one of the first studies to show how that works in practice.
0: Practice is obviously kind of crucial to, to the second half of the book. And these, you know, the, the four research studies and then Desert Island Discs, I think gives both a kind of sense of like, here's how a lot of these you know, theoretical considerations get into the actual doing of research. But also at the same time, it gives some clues to where the book ends up. And I guess one of the places the book ends up with is, is this question about how do we actually build in space for being reflexive in our research? And it also broaches a question about, uh, you know, kind of narcissism and self-description, which is, you know, where you, you sort of started off with, with Bourdieu. And we might take those in, in turn as a kind of conclusion. First off, how, how can we do reflexivity? Um, how can we build space for reflexivity?
1: So what, in looking at this, I found is that a lot of people treat reflexivity as a separate subject to the centre of their study. Karen Lumsden is criminologist at Loughborough and uh, wrote an excellent book about boy racer culture, um, in which she had to reflect on her position as a young woman who wasn't a boy racer trying to enter this very masculine, although not totally masculine, culture. And her first book, the discussion of the ethnography of it, sort of leaves out all the reflexivity. But then later in articles and a, another book with Aaron Winter about the um, role of reflexivity in criminology, and then I think a forthcoming book, she unpicks reflexivity and subjectivity in the research much, much more. So one thing that we found, I think, is that many researchers leave their data clean. And then we'll discuss reflexive issues in particular qualitative methods journals if they've got interesting things to say that arose in the midst of the research. I think part of me has always thought that's a bit of a cop out. But actually, on reflection, ironically, I actually think that's probably the right thing to do. If you read Matthew Desmond's recent book, Evicted, which again has won a multitude of awards in his amazing study of eviction in America, he, at the end, talks about the fact that he doesn't use I throughout the research because he doesn't want to be seen as important. It's his interviewees and ethnography participant stories that are important. I don't agree with him about the I. But one thing he does say is that When he's done talks about the book, he's been surrounded by questions about how did you feel and what were the ethical implications and how did you know you weren't being subjective about this data? And he says, that's all fine. That's all important. But it's not as important as discussing the policy issue of eviction in America, which is ruining ruining thousands of lives every month. And I agree with him on that. The important thing is the data. The important thing is that conclusions, whether they're about volunteering policy, whether they're about local government, whether they're about elite boarding schools or whether they're about eviction, are the things that have to be front and centre. So I'm not against, I think, people... Breaking their work up and doing separate reflexivity bits, if you will, whether that's blogs, whether that's online video diaries, whether that's journal articles, however you want to do it, I actually think that that's the right way to do it. An 8,000 word journal article, which is unfortunately the standard way of doing work in our discipline, doesn't allow a lot of room for going down um, methodological alleyways. So, Unfortunately, I think actually the system that we got in conclusion is one of the best ways to do it.
0: What about narcissism and self descriptions then? I mean, if I guess we could kind of end with that, that quite positive conclusion of, you know, um, how the system functions or perhaps doesn't. But one of the kind of like the obvious objections that you you meet in the conclusion kind of head on is this sense of like, why have you just told me a lot about John Dean? So, you know, how can, we, how can we sort of stop reflexivity just lap, lapsing into uh, self-description?
1: Again, this is a question that I struggled with quite a lot and I haven't got a great answer for you apart from the only way to tell if something is too personal and too narcissistic is to ask people to read it with that in question. As a key research question, whether that's in pre-peer review, whether that's with supervisor, whether that's with research colleagues, is this too self-focused? It's very difficult, I think, to find research that I would class as narcissistic. When someone's personal reflexivity is getting in the way of their data, when they're picking up such minor things that you think, right, that's unimportant, that's just you wanting to talk about yourself because something interesting happened to you, that has relationships, I suppose, with what we worry about in criminology which would be cowboy ethnography once that starts getting in the way yes it's a problem and we should encourage researchers to stop take a step back and go right is this really important were you really having that much of an effect on the data at that point howard becker famously said that eventually researchers slip into the background eventually participants forget you are there eventually you stop having as much an effect as you should do and I think Desmond's idea that the data itself is, is is the most important thing, is the thing that we have to hold in mind. But we shouldn't apologize for reflexivity. It is not narcissistic in itself. It It is a part of the researchers' toolkit that has to be done to provide thorough social scientific inquiry. If you are not reflexive, if you are not talking about how you might have affected the data, that is less rigorous than if you do do it. It is a necessity. And as Bennett Berger put it, reflexivity requires an eye and no apologies are needed. So, yes, I'm sure it's possible that there are researchers out there who have slipped into narcissism, who have written too much about themselves at the extent of downplaying their participants. But off the top of my head, I couldn't name very many at all.
0: In the spirit of kind of extending reflexivity, where where are you kind of going now? Are you doing more sort of um, you volunteering stuff? Are you, you know, doing, you know, kind of more reflections on on reflexivity? Is this, you know, do you feel like um, you're going to do a completely different project? What kind of comes next for your um, academic agenda?
1: So the reflexivity book was targeted at students and early career researchers as a teaching tool and as a guiding tool for helping them. I think I'm going to put a pin in that for the time being. I'll see how it does, whether people find it helpful in uh, teaching and doing PhDs and doctoral work and similar. What I'm focusing on next is going back to charity, I think. Uh, I think, as Desmond put it, the data is the most important thing, and I think I'm going to follow that path a little bit. So I've got a new project called The Symbolic Power of Charity, which explores that issue within charitable giving and fundraising and volunteering, which is... To what extent do I know that this makes me look like a good person because I'm being charitable? To what extent does me doing this cycle ride impress people and make me look like a good person? So the, uh, the project interviews a lot of policy practitioners within the charity field, does focus groups with young people about how they manage their online giving personas in order to create a good giving identity. It looks at things like the Poppy Appeal to see how Um, that's been used as a sort of symbolic violent act of pushing people to support agendas that they might not possibly support and that you are no longer you're not a patriot if you don't support the poppy appeal and to ribbon culture and uh, wristband culture and looking at all of those issues so yes I'm going back to uh, perhaps something less methodological and more uh, data driven.
0: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, David O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to John Dean, Senior Lecturer in Politics and Sociology at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK, about his new book, Doing Reflexivity: an
1: Introduction.